please remain standing as we read um, John 13, 1 through 17. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having left his own who were in this world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Jesus, Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, A person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing the feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth. No servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we just ask that you would come this morning um, and that you'd speak to us exactly where we are in a personal way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and take a seat, everyone. Hypothetical scenario. You're out to dinner with your family and some family friends, maybe some extended family. Let's say it's a Chinese restaurant. Uh, through the course of the meal, the, the conversation revolves around everything from vacation plans to, to what the kids are doing these days, off to college, starting a job at Google, maybe getting married next July. It's a classic family dinner. About two hours go by, the last course is finished, everyone is too full for dessert and the waiter approaches with the bill. Then it starts. Uncle number one reaches for his wallet. Uncle number two says, no, no, I've got this. Uncle number one says, oh, no, 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 you're our guest, please. Auntie number two says, remember last time we all went out, you treated us. Auntie number one, no, I think you're thinking of that other time. And this goes back and forth, back and forth, on and on and on, and then it escalates. Things get a little heated and it turns into a literal tug of war for the bill. You know, one side finally wins, but the other side, even though they were just treated to a meal, feels like it was more like a defeat than a free meal. Does this sound familiar? Purely hypothetical, but we've all been there. 
Uh, I'll never forget the time that Amanda and I went, we were down in California visiting family, and we were having lunch with a family friend who happened to be older. Uh, this particular couple had been like, super supportive and, and generous to us through the years, and so we wanted to pay for lunch. And I wanted to avoid all the back and forth and the fighting, and so I made this excuse to go to the bathroom, at which point I sneakily handed the waiter my credit card, and then when the bill came out, already paid for, I kind of had this grin on my face, and I expected our friend to be maybe a little annoyed, but then ultimately appreciative. But when he found out, he was actually furious, <laughs> and he proceeded to not talk to me the rest of the day. It was really weird. And this just got me thinking, like, why is it, why is it so hard to simply receive? Why does, why does being served make us feel uncomfortable and even, even insulted? We love free things, right? And we don't mind serving others at times. But when it comes to actually being served, it can rub us the wrong way. Maybe the feeling of receiving hurts our pride or, or we don't like the feeling of being indebted to someone. And so as strange as it sounds, maybe we actually don't like being served unless there is some clear reason, right? kind of makes us feel weird. But as it turns out, it was also strange in the context described by John in today's passage. If you're just joining us for the first time, we're midway through our series titled Being With Jesus. Uh, we've been journeying through the Gospel of John, specifically highlighting encounters with Jesus, all to ask this question. What does encountering and being with Jesus do to us? So we're going to unpack this passage in two parts today. Part one, you must be washed. Part two, do what I do. First part one. Let's pick it up at verse one. Uh, now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So first, some context. This all took place around the Feast of Passover, which is one of the most important feast days in the Jewish calendar. During Passover, Jews remember how God punished the Egyptians and delivered them out of slavery in Egypt. And so Passover commemorates God's faithfulness to the Jewish people. Central to celebrating Passover is the sacrifice of the Passover lamb. And this is important here. So Jesus, having the Passover meal, Jesus is having the Passover meal with his disciples. It's the last supper before he's arrested to be crucified. And so in other words, Jesus himself is about to be the ultimate Passover lamb. And what he's about to do for his disciples foreshadows what he's about to do for all of humanity on the cross. Now, it's also interesting because John specifies that Jesus knew his time was coming. Like he knew he was about to die. So he uses his last moments to wash his friend's feet. Think of it this way. If you knew that you only had a couple days to live, what would you do? Kind of doubt it would involve washing people's feet, right? Second piece of context, the foot washing itself. Let's continue in verse 2. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him... Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come down from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. 
Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So back then, foot washing was customary. If you were a guest entering into a home, your feet would be washed. In those days, Roman roads were all dirt. Everyone wore sandals, like Birkenstocks and Crocs, all around, all the day long. And since most people traveled by foot and socks and sandals were not a thing yet, feet would be filthy. Hence the need to wash your feet upon entering someone's house. Now, the job of washing the feet of guests would always be reserved for the servant or the slave of the household. Never now let's get some perspective. If you remember John's gospel, right in chapter one, from the start, starts with this. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So here in John chapter 13, Jesus, the word, God himself in the flesh, performs the task a slave, washing his disciples' icky feet, caked with dust and dirt, probably full of crusty calluses, likely smelly. And so Peter, knowing this and realizing what seems to be the ridiculousness of what Jesus was doing, asks, Lord, do you wash my feet? And then he goes on to say, you shall never wash my feet, as in That's the job of a slave. I can't let you do that. And Jesus replies, what I'm doing, you do not understand now, but afterward, you will understand. And this is what I want to sit on for a moment. What I am doing, you do not understand, but afterward, you will understand. And then just a few moments later, Jesus asked, do you understand what I have done to you? Understand what exactly? What, the, what, what do they not yet understand? Hold that thought. Back to the restaurant. Why do people get so uppity when it comes to who pays for dinner? You know, why the tug of war over the bill? Why was our family friends so furious when we paid? I might be going out on a limb here, but at the heart of it, if you think about it, is, is a reversal of roles. In our Vietnamese culture, Age hierarchy is kind of a big deal. This is why we have so many titles and rules for how we address people depending on their age and then the age of their parents and so on. It gets kind of complicated. And with these titles come assumed roles. Let me give you an example. Growing up, everywhere I went, people would always refer to me as, oh, you're Yung's son, Gong Yung. Uh, and, and that's obviously true, but it was like, it was my name, you know? But now, no matter how old I get, it doesn't matter that I'm married, that I have a kid, no matter how old I get, I will always be my father's son. And I know that sounds like nice and sentimental, but here's what I mean. Like, he'll still buy me groceries. He's like, hey, I got a Costco card. Let me get Costco groceries for you. Uh, He'll still randomly drop off food and send leftovers home every time we eat at their place. He'll still remind me to do this and that. And I think many of you know what I'm talking about. You know, we, we never stop being seen as kids by our elders. No matter how old we get, they'll always see us as that five-year-old dependent. And there's, you know, there's some beauty in that. Like, I always appreciate the help. I always appreciate the advice, the free meals. Um, but I think this is part of why 
our family friend was so upset when we paid for the meal. This, this, is, this is cultural dissonance here. Because to pay for someone reverses the role. The giver becomes the receiver. The elder, in a sense, becomes the younger, the dependent. And that gets dicey in a culture that honors age. To receive in this way does something to your sense of self. To be an elder is to be in a place of higher honor and esteem. And in a culture where honor is everything, to have someone pay for you is to reverse that role. You go from being in a place of honor to a place of needing and receiving, as if that's a bad thing. And we feel uncomfortable being needy and receiving help. This is why a lot of us have trouble asking for help, especially if you're a man, if you're a guy. Uh, this is why so many, of, so many of us bottle up our problems inside, shouldering our problems alone instead of sharing with people who care about us or with professionals. You know, on the surface, we say, oh, I don't want to burden anyone. But beneath the surface, our pride operates in the shadows because it hurts your pride to ask for help, to be needed, to receive help. So, as a result, we go on suffering feeding some illusion of strength, of independence, pride, or machismo. All the while, our mental and emotional health withers along with our souls. Our relationships with God and with others remain shallow. Community life remains surface level. And any chance of transformation and new life is out of the question. So in effect, we, like Peter, say, you shall never wash my feet. On the surface, we don't believe Jesus, our Lord, should lower himself to serve us. But beneath the surface, we don't want to need him. Because to really need Jesus does something to our sense of self. It, it shatters the illusions of strength, independence, and pride. To need Jesus is to admit that we cannot thrive on our own. And so to need and receive help brings us into a place of humility that humbles us. And as it turns out, that's kind of the point. This is exactly where Jesus wants us. This is why he must say to Peter and to us, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. This is why he says, ask and you shall receive. Because we have a lot of trouble humbling ourselves to ask. This is why in his kingdom, the last will be first. Blessed are the meek. And the great tragedy is this. In our desire to be strong, independent, self-made, we lose out on the love and the grace of Jesus because we don't want to need him or to depend on him. So back to Jesus' question as he washes his, uh, as he washes his disciples' feet. He asks, do you understand what I've done to you? In our culture, in particular our, our Asian culture, we have a lot of trouble with this. We have a lot of trouble understanding and accepting this reversal of roles. We have trouble needing and receiving help, needing and receiving mercy and forgiveness. This difficulty is, is proven by the fact that honor and image are so important to us by the fact that we cannot share the deepest, darkest parts of ourselves or our lives for fear of shame, even if that bars us from real relationship, real repentance, and real healing. 
by the fact that repression, putting on a good face, or joking away our issues is the norm. And by the fact that operating behind that cultural baggage is the human struggle with pride. On top of that, we live in an age of increasing narcissism, the doctrines of self-empowerment, self-betterment. We don't need God because we can be our own gods. Today, it's more the gospel of the American dream that drives us than it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. But this is nothing new. It's it's like a repeat of Adam and Eve in the garden just as they're about to eat the fruit. At the heart of it all is a desire for autonomy. We don't want to need God. And so we continue to feed the lie that we don't need him. We have serious trouble reconciling with and and accepting the fact that we're broken people, that we're needy people. And that after all the distraction, all the medication, the therapy, the only person that can truly save us is Jesus. In other words, we have trouble with the gospel. We have trouble with, with grace and the fact that we need it daily. We have trouble accepting that we need saving and that God sent his son down to do just that. Jesus lowered himself, became human to do it. And so just think of how crazy that is, especially you know, for longtime professing Christians to go to church your entire life only to, to misunderstand the true gospel. I mean, much of the time, we would rather earn salvation for ourselves. We would rather earn what Jesus does through us for us through the things that we do rather than accepting it as a free gift. This is why so many, say, so many people say things like, well, I need to get my act together before I come to church, before I come to God. It's why a lot of people busy themselves with church activities and tasks and, and Christian-themed things. Grace continues to be a foreign concept to us. You know, we can't wrap our minds around the fact that God loves us simply because he is love. And that, as Paul writes, Jesus chose to die for us while we were still sinners, meaning he loved us before we got anything together. There are even times when, when we feel like he owes us. Like we think, well, I go to church regularly, I pray, I do this and that for my community, I serve. Why isn't he blessing me the way that I want him to? We act as if we earn God's love and favor. This is not grace. As Christian philosopher Dallas Willard states, grace is not opposed to effort, only earning. And so what Jesus says to Peter, he says to us, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Scripture also says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Unless we acknowledge the fact that we are broken people in need of saving and the reality that we need the grace of Jesus daily, we have no part in his kingdom. Unless we can humble ourselves and welcome his help, welcome his forgiveness and his plans for our lives, we have no part in his kingdom. Unless we're willing to be served by Jesus, we have no part with him. And this is challenging. It's like, it's, it's literally countercultural, especially for our own culture. And yet, 
at the same time, it's actually incredibly beautiful, quite simple, and incredibly welcoming. Grace is not opposed to effort, only earning. Friends, this is great news. It's great news because it means that we don't earn our way into God's family through merit, through following every rule and law to the T, through good acts or performance. It means we can throw our need to perform out the window because in God's kingdom, we're all on equal footing. As Paul writes, for all, not some, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Let's skip ahead. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. So rule one in the kingdom, just receive Receive Jesus. Receive the gift of grace. Receive his forgiveness. Receive his death for you. And then receive the new life that he has in store for you. You must be washed. Let him wash you. Now, depending on, on where you are with your, with your walk with Jesus, receiving will look a little different. If you don't yet know Jesus, if you're totally new to all this, Receiving would simply look like this. Believe in him. Believe that he actually existed, that he actually died, that he actually rose again. Acknowledge that you are a sinner, that your heart, like everything else in this world, is infected by sin. And that you need saving from that. Acknowledge that God sent Jesus to die on the cross, absorbing your debt. Accept him as Lord and Savior and follow him. If you're a newer believer, just starting to follow Jesus, receiving might take the form of identifying, confronting, and, and changing old mindsets through, through, through receiving the help of the Holy Spirit. This is why Paul writes, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Now, this might mean confronting things like our need to perform, our, our merit-based mindset, uh, all the honor-shame baggage we might be carrying. It might be confronting our need to be independent and instead receive strength from Jesus depending on him instead. It might mean confronting our workaholism or our careerism and receiving the gift of rest through Sabbath. It might mean confronting our need to have the approval of people and instead learn to rest on the love of Jesus. And for all followers of Jesus, receiving and being washed by Jesus means repenting of old habits and old sin patterns to live into our forgiveness and to receive the transforming work that Jesus wants to do in us. He says in verse 10, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. When we receive Jesus and what he did on the cross, we are completely clean and we're considered right before God. But as we do life with Jesus, as we live into a culture of confession and repentance, as we are continually healed and transformed, we're continually being refined and changed. This is the ongoing process that theologians refer to as sanctification. 
A transformation is a central part of following Jesus. It is to be expected. We enter into a life of continually being washed, continually transformed by Jesus through the, through the power of the Holy Spirit and with our participation. This is what life is like with him. Now, part two. Do what I do. We'll pick it up in verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example, that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. For I have given you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. Jesus gives us a model to follow. And the expectation is that we follow and do the same. This is what it means to be a disciple or an apprentice. An apprentice does whatever their master does. Following Jesus simply means being with him and following his example. Doing what he did. In this case, Jesus humbles himself. He lowers himself to serve his friends. And then he invites us to do the same. Following Jesus means doing what he did, including the unattractive and even the uncomfortable things. Even the things that the world might deem to be foolish or just weird. In our house, uh, Amanda and I do our best to divide the chores, uh, and we do so based on our preferences. For example, I would rather do the dishes than the laundry. She usually does the vacuuming, but I mow the lawn. Uh, she cleans the counters. I scrub the toilets. You get the idea. But since becoming parents, we've had to adapt a bit. If Amanda's with Phoebe, then I will do the vacuuming and the laundry. If I have a lot of work to get done, Amanda will do the dishes. My point is, one way we express love in our marriage is by doing tasks and chores that we do not prefer to do for the sake of the other person. Love leads us to serve in different and sometimes unfamiliar, uncomfortable, and even humbling ways. So if you ask me, like when we were dating early on, what love looked like, I would not say anything about chores. But this is what it looks like when love transforms you. Now, it's like, this is such a mild example, but this is essentially a byproduct of life with Jesus. We tend to stick with what feels good, what's socially acceptable, what is comfortable to us. But as we follow Jesus, it is inevitable that we will be led into situations and relationships that require us to do uncomfortable and even messy things. When it comes to loving others, Jesus calls us to love our neighbors. And that includes the people who we wouldn't normally associate with. Whereas we might be comfortable with our usual friend group, following Jesus' example would mean being a friend to the person in need, to the person who feels alone, or to the person whom everyone else overlooks. And Jesus really takes it to the next level. He even calls us to love our enemies. Whereas 
we might be comfortable loving people who like us or people who are like us. Following Jesus' example would be loving people who don't see eye to eye with us. People who share different beliefs or, or political views. People who might even hate us or want to take advantage of us. Whereas the norm might be loving those who love us and by extension even loving others so that we can get something in return, following Jesus' example would mean loving people without any expectation of receiving anything in return. Loving in a selfless way rather than a self-centered and self-serving way. When it comes to loving others, our comfort zone might be surface-level relationships. We'll share jokes, common interests, we'll text and hang out. But following Jesus usually leads us past the surface, past levels of comfort and into deeper, messier relationships. He leads us into a relationship where openness and vulnerability are the new norm, where we encourage each other, but also confront, challenge, and sharpen each other in love and truth, where we sacrifice for the other person, where we practice forgiving each other rather than cutting each other out, where we celebrate each other's victories, but also where we sit with each other, present and faithful through the hardest times. Following Jesus leads us into places of brokenness. It opens our eyes to those who are hurting, to those who are outcast and and marginalized in the world, to those who are even oppressed, because it's far easier and more comfortable to pretend like that all doesn't exist or to ignore it altogether. But following Jesus leads us into reality. Following Jesus leads us past the people and crowds we would normally feel comfortable with and towards those who are suffering by themselves, towards those whom most might even avoid. But as we step out in faith to follow his model, as we step out of our comfort zone in order to live like Jesus lived and loved like he loved, Something happens inside of us. We are changed. Little by little. This is us saying, Jesus, I'm going to trust the way you do life. This is us participating in faith with the Holy Spirit transforming us. And as we model our lives and actions after Jesus' life and actions... We become more like Jesus. More and more we grow in love. More and more we grow in our experience of his love for us. We learn to receive, finally. And we grow in the ways that we show love like Jesus. This is why, ultimately, John chapter 3 ends with this. A new commandment I give to you. That you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Pastor and writer John Mark Comer reminds us this. For Jesus, love is the telos, or the goal, of the spiritual journey. It is the metric by which we chart our progress. So how do you know you're growing as a follower of Jesus? If you're growing in love. 
And so to return to the question of the series, what does encountering and being with Jesus do to us? First, it teaches us to simply embrace our need for him. We need him. We needed him to go to the cross. We need him to heal and restore us. We need his love, his patience, his wisdom, his strength, and his presence daily. Friends and relationship, community are good, good things, but they don't replace Jesus. Therapy, professional help are great, but they don't ultimately replace Jesus. Spiritual practices and disciplines like praying, reading the Bible, fasting even, are great, but they are empty without Jesus. Second, encountering and being with Jesus humbles us. It teaches us to be humble receivers, receiving Jesus, receiving his love and grace given freely. It pulls us away from stubborn pride and the illusion of independence, the illusion that we have to earn his love, and instead teaches us to simply rest in his love to depend on him in faith. And then third, it leads us to follow his example in the way that he loved others. Being with Jesus humbles us to serve others because that's what he did. And if Jesus, the King of kings, the the Lord of all creation, humbled himself, we can do the same. It leads us to love in uncomfortable and even foolish ways. To love in a way that doesn't benefit us in any way. To love in completely self-giving ways rather than self-serving ways. Which is only possible when we are receiving his unlimited love given freely to us. And so to end and to lead us into obeying and practicing this week, I want to offer two points to reflect on, wrestle with and then practice. The first is this. Jesus says, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. So one way we can practice letting Jesus wash us is simply through the practice of confession and repentance. Just ask yourself this. What parts of your life continue to remain hidden from Jesus? What parts of your life do you prefer to live your own way? How are you still fighting for autonomy from God? Just bring this to Jesus. Ask him to show you what it would look like to repent and to turn from that. And as you confess, know that Jesus doesn't bring judgment, but forgiveness. He doesn't bring condemnation, but healing. And for any healing and change to take place, we need a culture of confession and repentance. Second is this. Jesus says, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should do just as I have done to you. And so think of the people in the groups that you interact with on a daily basis. How can you love boldly in a self-giving way this week? In a way that isn't self-centered. How can you humble yourself to serve This is how we practice turning our eyes away from ourselves and towards others in the world. This is how we, like Jesus, practice sacrificial love. And it doesn't need to be anything big. You know, we can start wherever we're at. It might mean something as simple as a random act of kindness to a friend. 
It might mean going out and grabbing coffee with someone in need. Or it might mean praying for someone you would never associate with. Someone you don't see eye to eye with. And who knows? It might even mean spending time with them. But to sum all of this up simply, just ask yourself this. How can we do what Jesus did today, this week, this month, at home, in the workplace, among friends or even strangers? Let that be the question you wake up to every day. And then even the question you reflect on before bed. And this alone can become the seed for real change. Let's stand and pray together. Father, Lord, we thank you that that in your kingdom it all just starts with receiving. Receiving what you have to give us. Receiving you. Receiving your love. Receiving your grace and your power. And so, Lord, we ask that you would teach us to be good, humble receivers. We ask that you would just get rid of any illusions of of independence that we feel we need to have, of, of strength that we feel that we need to have. Get rid of any illusions and lies that say that we need to put ourselves together. And Lord, help us to, to throw ourselves on you. And at the same time, Lord, we just ask that, that you would teach us to love like you love and to serve like you serve. To be a friend as you were a friend. To love sacrificially just as you do. Teach us this and give us the strength to do as you did, Lord. We pray all this in your name. Amen.